This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you are listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think is an online forum for the world's most interesting thinkers and doers to share their ideas on video. Since 2008, we've shared over 10,000 of them. On the Think Again podcast, we surprise our guests and myself, your host, with unexpected clips from these vast and mysterious archives, and then we discuss them. I'm very happy to be here today with Baratunde Thurston, a philosopher comedian fighting for the future. He's the founder of Cultivated Wit, author of How to Be Black, and host of the excellent podcast about race that's talking honestly and openly about the issues of race and identity that America is too freaked out to discuss rationally. Welcome to the show, Baratunde. Thank you, Jason. Got a couple corrections. Uh-oh. On a question. All right. Uh, I'm the co-founder of Cultivated Wit, not, oh. not the founder, All right. uh, which would greatly upset the other, whoever their names are. And uh, 10,000 videos? Yeah. It's a lot of videos, and that's one of the reasons why this show exists. All because right. otherwise they fall into a deep, dark pit of nothingness after time. Yeah, right? yeah. So that's, we well, that's life. draw them out of the pit. Then you're, this podcast is re-consuming right. the videos. It's like you're eating your own feces, right? But that, it's not feces, it's like great ideas. It's kind of like the that. Feces were delicious ideas. You know, if the world were to end tomorrow, we could just pretty much keep going that's right. on that's in right. our underground bunker. Surviving for, like, off of your own media. Ever. Yeah. That's pretty cool. It, I think so. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks, Barrington. All right. Well, let's see what lies in store for us today in terms of the surprise clips that like the producers have chosen for us. Yeah, like we have that. no idea what we're going to encounter. It's Rick Smolin, author of The Human Face of Big Data, talking about the heroes and villains of computer hacking throughout history. Someone just anecdotally was in our office one day and showed me a presentation they were given. And in their presentation was this picture of the old FBI filing system from the 50s. The women with little file, you know, card catalogs in this vast sort of warehouse. And, and then someone showed me a picture of Julian Assange's data center 100 feet underground in Sweden. And then I thought, I wonder if there's some story about J. Edgar Hoover that Time Magazine did as a hero back then. And of course back then he was a hero, he was the head of the FBI, saving the free world. And now we found out that in fact he was using a lot of this information for his own personal uh, purposes. I wonder if 50 years from now we'll look back, maybe Julian will be the hero and J. Edgar Hoover will be the, the enemy of the state. That time changes the way that we understand perspective. The data center where the WikiLeaks data is stored is actually much more vulnerable to attack than the FBI filing system, which you couldn't have gotten in there. And if you did get in there, there were no Xerox machines and there were certainly no thumb drives. So the fact that all this data that actually ended up in WikiLeaks was basically snuck out on little thumb drives 
would have been impossible back in the 50s. So that was actually more secure, even though it was much less accessible. So the page has this wonderful sort of echoes back and forth through technology and space and time and politics and, and history. And it's one of my favorite spreads in the book. Let's start with that guy's mustache. That was Rick Smolin. Yeah, okay. I actually... Look I, up his mustache online, I people. see his book everywhere. At any rate, his uh, thoughts made uh, thoughts in me that I, I will share with you now. And that is that, what we that's will how discuss. This works. Yeah. Sweet. So one was this image of human filers of files, like these women in the FBI, uh, almost like professional librarians in a much more secure environment right. with shells about their height that look like they're in a space the size of Penn Station. And the idea that a computer was a person in the past, that it was someone who computed sure. and used devices to get that done, and that we have taken all those human bodies and shoved them inside of very tiny motherboards, circuit boards, uh, transistors, etc. It's just kind of astounding for the scale, like the amount of data that could be stored in that same room today is almost infinitely larger than whatever they, they had back in the 50s. And then the other, you know, he proposed this thought about security of the data and how the FBI sort of human filing system was much more secure than, right. than Assange's filing system. I think I lost him a little bit there because any one of those people who worked inside the FBI back in the day right. was a leak. Right, they sure. were potential. That's right. You know, Chelsea Manning. And the more of them there are, the more leaks that potential yeah, leaks yeah, there are. Yeah, so they right? all have little like micro cameras, and they, I mean, a, big, a slow process. Like, right. Certainly, one person couldn't suck out the whole library. Right. But they could chop up little pieces of the library. People would be like, "Where are you it. going with all those cards?" Like yes. the guy was like, oh, "I want to clean them. Just clean the dirty cards. I yeah. clean the cards." <laughs> Hoover hates dirty cards. <laughs> he likes underwear and hates dirty cards and black people. <laughs> Hates the black people. That's probably true. Yeah. 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 That was a, that was a foul dude. And then the idea of, uh, you know, how history changes our perspective. Right. On, on what a hero versus a villain is. And, you know, we're, we're in a moment right now where we're a week after the massacre in Charleston. Yep. And, you know, and then out of that, to my great surprise, we're having a pretty compromised discussion about the Confederate flag. And... Yeah. You know, the perception of that image, you know, over time. Like two how, conversations that are blowing my mind. Yeah. One, one, the Confederate flag. Two, the fact that somehow it has become a partisan issue whether or not this shooting was racially motivated. Right. That you actually, you have Republicans out there denying that this might have been racially motivated. No, it was, it was, it was against uh, worshipers of Christ. You know, this yeah. guy just really hated people who really loved Jesus. And right, was, but what is the dog was, in that fight? Like, yeah. what is the advantage of denying that this is racially motivated? Because you know? then you, if you deny racial motivation, you deny racism, you deny grievance, you deny I understand, but injustice. why is that a right issue? Why is that a Republican issue? You know what because I mean? Like, why, why, is the, yeah. why do they have a dog in the fight of there not being racism? Like, because they don't have any black people. And yes. that can't be racist. Right. There has to be another explanation. <laughs> but there's a different kind of delusion going on, I right. think, where they've kind of skipped ahead. And in their optimism about how great America is, they are kind of skipping the hard work of correcting a lot of things that are bad about America. That's right. And it messes with their narrative of if you work hard, you get ahead. If, in fact, you don't get ahead if you work hard because of systemic issues of discrimination and racism and white supremacy. So it's a very inconvenient set of perspectives and facts that undermines their whole theory 
uh, of what organizes that party. Yeah, it's so yeah. negative, all this talk <laughs> yeah. about racism. Yeah. You know? <laughs> let's just focus, accentuate the positive. So, so yeah, the, 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 the power of history to, to lead a different perspective on the same event. Right. You know, Hoover was a hero, and then, he was never a hero in my education. Like, he was always Me either. the bad yeah. guy. Yeah. But I was also not alive in the 50s. Right. But the prevailing wisdom, like this guy, like he said, is saving us, you know, protecting the freedoms. And then time has given us some new values, and now a hero is a villain. Yeah, yeah I mean, with respect to Assange, that decision of whether he's a hero or a villain yeah. is pretty ambivalent. There are people on both sides of that. Yeah. I don't think hero or villain necessarily applies. He's a bit mm -hmm. of a Robin Hood figure, you know? He took the Stole information. Stole data from the data rich yeah. and gave it to the data, data poor. poor, right? Yes. So that's exciting because, yeah. like, wow, we know stuff now. Is that good always for yeah. national security, et cetera? Yeah. I don't know. I don't think I would call him a traitor either, you in, know? Uh, in comedy, we have a word for that. Too soon. Right. It's too soon to tell. Those terms are also very simple. You know, all heroes have villainous traits and all villains have heroic aspects. I'm sure he made a lot of secretaries' lives hell. The yelling that has happened in government offices across the planet because of Julian Assange. Scapegoating and the blaming that happened for people who had nothing to do with this but who took little tiny falls for Julian Assange's I'm sure. uh, platform. I, well, when you said secretaries, I was thinking actually of the poor secretaries working for Julian Assange, having to <laughs> index yeah. this stuff <laughs> inside <laughs> his little thumb drive. Yes. You know? yes. I don't know where to begin. The miniature workers. Yeah, the uh, tiny yeah. little. Yeah, in his solid state drive. It's a much more volatile world, whether it's your personal document history, like the amount of harm that can happen to you, because I don't like what you're saying on your feminist blog, right. that I am going to violate your personal privacy and share your social security number and home address and bring hell to your life at a scale. Impossible, yeah, actual harm. Never like, before possible. Like right. The equivalent in the past is putting someone's phone number on a bathroom stall. <laughs> and right, now and that's just, one person and they have to go talk to a bunch yeah, of other so, people so and whatever. The, the spreadability of that harm, you know, the viral nature was, was capped. And as you say, the same for good. So I guess depending on to what extent you're an optimist, a pessimist, yeah. or a realist, you know, it, it depends what you're focusing on. But Yeah, I mean, uh, people can look at the, the, there's a trite example in some ways, but that ice bucket challenge. They raised an order of magnitude more money Yeah. in less than an order of magnitude more time. The scale, the scale of all of this is very different. You know, yes. We have the ability to reach many more people right. than ever with our stupidity right? <laughs> in history. Yes. Right? We can take a photo and put it on Reddit or Imgur and touch the world. Right. We can do great, greater Kim Kardashians, but can break the internet. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Or, or cannot, but still benefit from the brand, break the internet. Quote, unquote, like it definitely pretend didn't, to break the, the internet. internet it didn't yeah, do, the internet's it fine. It's still there, isn't it? It's absolutely like it just proved the internet is what that, it sort of oiled the internet. Yeah, <laughs> lubricates <laughs> the internet. That's, that's what her booty did. I'm glad we could get there. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So let's move Round on to two, the next fight. one. Yeah, that's right. Jonathan, we're ready, we think. Okay, coming up is physicist Lawrence Krauss, who is not as afraid of AI as are his friends Bill Gates and Elon Musk. I see no obstacle to computers eventually uh, becoming conscious in some sense. And in the long term, the ultimate highest forms of consciousness on the planet may not be purely biological. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. We always present 
computers as if they don't have capabilities of empathy. But I would think that any intelligent machine, it's a learning machine, and ultimately it would learn from its experience like a, like a biological conscious being. And therefore, it's hard for me to believe that it would not be able to have many of the characteristics that we now associate with being human. I'm frankly not as concerned about AI in the near term, at the very least, as many, many of my friends and colleagues are. It's far less powerful than people imagine. I mean, you can't even get robots to fold laundry. We, of course, have to realize that the rate at which machines are evolving in capability may far exceed the rate at which society is able to deal with them. The fact that teenagers aren't talking to each other but always looking at their phones, well, that may be not a good thing for societal interaction, and people may have to come to terms with that. But I don't think people view their phones as a danger. They view their phones as a tool that in many ways allow them to do what they would otherwise do more effectively. While we were watching that, Bharatunde, you were checking your email. <laughs> I wasn't checking my email. I was pulling up my most recent column from Fast Company. Do not fear the robot apocalypse. Okay. I, I want to quote myself, which I've never done on a podcast before, so this is a, this is a pioneering moment. Quote, we may be giving the machines and ourselves too much credit. We don't need to imagine a future filled with human suffering at the liquid metal hands of super smart robots. Many are suffering now at the hands of their fellow humans. It's possible that artificial intelligence is the only way forward for a species that seems unconcerned with its own survival. On the one hand, you have the singularity folks, right, right who believe that it's insane. all good. You yeah. know, that basically the robots will become intelligent and that will be beneficial for humans because we will meld with the robots mm -hmm. and we will put chips in we'll our brains. sex with the robots. Already, yeah, there was there were a recent spate of articles around how sex toy robots yeah. are going to speak to you intelligently. The safest sex ever. The places where we deploy this stuff... It's basically BS. If you look at where Silicon Valley investment is going, if you look at what the servers are doing with their capacity, right. it's like selling us stuff. Super targeted, but, yeah. precise Facebook marketing. has created an advertising machine. Right. Google right. has created an advertising machine. AI is going to destroy us, <laughs> but not in the way we've imagined. Right. With lasers and bombs. Um, it's with just terrible products that like bleed us into a debt-riddled future. Yeah, Silicon Valley would say no. These are the precise products that you, Baratunde, <laughs> personally need because yes. we understand you. Our machine understands you better than any other advertiser yeah. ever has in history. So, so, so then we the, know you need beard oil. I do need beard oil. I have some great beard oil. <laughs> so that was one. The other is uh, like, what is the extreme version of offloading human function? Right. Right. And so we have disintermediated ourselves from so much of what it has meant to be human. You can kind of see, like history has answered this question a lot. Most of us are not in agriculture anymore. Right. Like we don't farm, but we still eat. In fact, we eat more now that we don't farm. We travel with discretion if we have enough means to do right. that. That's and people shop. Yeah. yeah. And they, you know, so meditate. We've created new stuff. verbs for ourselves. Right. With the amount of time we are not spending in the fields and dying. And that's we true. also live like 50 years longer than we did a thousand years ago. Right. So we actually have decades more time on this planet. So, so what happens when the machines, and not just the machines, that's kind of a, a euphemism for all things AI, right. when they do our taxes, route our way to work, talk to 
our friends on our behalf. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a right. service called Crystal Nose, K-N-O-W-S. Okay. A human interaction like optimizer. It's basically a personality test oh my God. built into your Gmail. So when I know I'm emailing with you, yeah. it has scanned all of your public commentary to build a personal profile of how you like to communicate. Snarky, cynical. You should keep your yeah. correspondence with Jason short and to the point. <laughs> he doesn't like unnecessary or frivolous commentary. Oh, no. So when I'm interacting in a future where AI is deployed to help me interact, right. not to like do hard labor, but to smooth my game at the bar, right. or to help me in a job interview, when am I interacting as me versus as enhanced me? And sort of what becomes of me yes. in that context? Boom. because. Because at some point, I would think, rather than simply analyzing my patterns of interaction mm -hmm. on, on the internet, the machine will be suggesting yeah, yeah, and prescribing yeah. personality traits and actions yep. and so forth. And then there'll be this like little me inside going, let me out. Or, There's know, a word for that. It's called slavery. Right? So maybe that's a thing to, to be concerned about. So punks will be like burning their tech, you know? They'll be <laughs> yeah, just like right. smashing it, yeah, you know? Yeah, like I'm real. Like there'll be a, a movement of, like keeping it real will have new meaning. It'll mean in some way keeping it inefficient, keeping it dirty, because <sighs> the enhanced versions are somehow like inauthentic. There's a woman at the, the Media Lab at MIT, and she thinks about robot ethics. We've talked a lot about this technology enhancing us, but there is another future that, that Krauss talked about, which is like robots and machines as independent of us as conscious, sentient beings that may be empathetic, but also that might demand our empathy. And so this woman, Kate Darling, thinks about yes. our empathy toward machines. And it's you know, a question on the spectrum of what is human, ultimately, right. and, and robot rights. Some of this yeah. stuff may first come out of the AI sex dolls, right? right? That's you know, right. Like, like, is that is sex, that sex slaves, trafficking? Basically. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, wow. yeah, what point do they have human rights? And at what point does the word human have to expand to encompass non-biological consciousness? I mean, Ex Machina is the best Which I have yet to see movie. because I have a small child and can never go to movies. But Yeah, take your baby to the movie. Ex Machina? <laughs> <laughs> That's a bad idea. You'll train the next generation to <laughs> empathize and, and live out this future we're talking about. And on the notion that, um, well that intelligence is engineered, so those feelings aren't real, so are we. We have a code base, right. which is our DNA, which is the culture around us. And we would be hard pressed, I think, in a distant future to argue that the distinction is meaningful between the level of engineering that led to us right. versus the level of engineering that leads to, for now, what we'll call it. All right, up for the next one? Yeah. All right. This one's from Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Jason. So this clip is from Big Think Edge. It's Guy Kawasaki, who is an Apple brand evangelist, and he's cautioning us against too much self-branding. When you have this kind of perspective that you've, you've arrived, that you have established a brand, that's a really slippery slope towards just egomania. I had a Porsche 911, and I'm driving down this street in Menlo Park, and I stop at a stoplight, and I look over to my left, and I see this, this car full of teenage girls, and they're looking at me, and they're smiling at me, and they're laughing. And finally, one of them motions, you know, roll down the car window. 
So I'm sitting there and thinking, you know, I have truly arrived. You know, they probably know me from my background as an evangelist at Apple, or maybe they've seen me as an author, or maybe they've seen me as a venture capitalist, but I've truly arrived because now teenage girls are, you know, waving me down on the street. So I roll down the window, and this girl leans out and says to me, are you Jackie Chan? And I... That was just like one of the world's funniest moments for me. So now one of my goals in life, speaking of personal brands, is that someday in Hong Kong, Jackie Chan is driving his car, stops at a light, car next door is full of teenage girls. They ask Jackie Chan to roll down his window. He rolls down his window and they ask him, are you Guy Kawasaki? That's my goal. First of all, I want to talk openly, honestly, nakedly about ambition. I think about this stuff a lot how we package ourselves, what we want to be, and what reflects back to you from the public. Are you going to take that in and in any way use yeah. that to sort of define yourself? And is that insidious and dangerous and terrible? How does some of that play out? It's a challenge. Where I'm at with it is I'm actually embracing that ambition, that idea that like I want to be heard and feel like I, des I should be heard, right. that things worth hearing and agreeing that yes, I, I, w I want that. And so, like how much do I invest in the crafting of myself right. versus the being of myself? And um, is it possible or is it necessary? Like, is there such a thing as an authentic brand? Yeah, I, I've gone through a couple of exercises, formal exercises with other people to help me think about what I'm gonna do with my life, my professional life. Right. What am I building? Because I've done like the cultivated wit thing, and right. I co-founded a company with other people. Right. The so onion thing. What are you? The stand-up comedy thing. The, the, the race commentary and book. And right, right. if you are the least sort of generous with your language, you're right. like, this guy doesn't know what the hell he's about, right? If you're the most generous, you're like, this guy's got a multi-platform strategy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like I hear the language of brand applied to people in general, and that bothers me a little bit. If you're not really trying to be like a public figure, then brand is a little too salesy language to apply to like just be yourself. Just there be, ought to be something that you're trying to amplify. Yeah, rather than yeah. Just so like, what do you yourself. stand for? Right, right, right. Is important. So for me, the idea of what my brand is is becomes really important, and it's not just an ego question. Right. It's a survival question because it also says, what am I going to say yes to versus no? Right. Like, how am I going to decide how to spend? This limited time on this planet. And so coming here today, I was a brand question, right? And, and it's not quite the same as like Coca-Cola deciding what market to enter, but it's really similar. Right? I don't have shareholders in the same way, but I do have a public. Right. I have a community that I care about, right. whose respect I care about, uh, whether they be family members, close friends, readers, or fans. I don't know, I just find myself in a very a newly accepted but still challenge space around how I'm defining, you know, what's important to me. And let me ask you a question. Yeah. What is, what is your brand? Like, what do you care about? What do you stand for? So I care about the opportunity to discuss ideas openly and fearlessly with just about anyone. Um, I care about 
people being able to talk to each other rather than foreclosing on conversation and breaking, balkanizing into little groups that hate each other. I yeah. mean, and being able to do that through writing and through speaking and through this podcast, if that can be my life, then I think that's a good life because I think there's a lot of energy in this world that's being directed toward hate and separation. I just want to slow clap for that. That was beautiful for your uh, aspiration. Yeah, like thank you. It's a good goal. It's like a, you're adding something good to the world. So I, I co-sign on your brand strategy. Thanks for asking the question. Yeah, yeah. So on that note, is there anything you want to leave the people with, things you're working on? Uh, I am still involved with Cultivated Wit. People should take a look at our Comedy Hack Day. We bring technologists and comedians together to build jokes you can literally play with. Browser plugins, mobile apps, web experiences. And then the podcast that you so lovingly mentioned earlier is called Our National Conversation about conversations about race. Yep. There are three of us, me, Tanner Colby, who's white, Raquel Cepeda, yep. who's Latina, and we are having the type of discussion you just described. It so. is a force for good in the world, folks. Well, it's, thank you. It, you know, at a time that it's sorely needed. And uh, if you could press the button on the random quote generator. Are you ready? Yeah, let's go. <clears throat> the price one pays for pursuing any profession or calling is an intimate knowledge of its ugly side. James Baldwin. All right, folks, that is Think Again for this week. Thank you for joining us. You can find us on Twitter at Big Think Again, and we'll see you next week. 